Imagine that you are a Kalahari Bushman and that you stumble upon a transistor radio in the sand. You might pick it up, twiddle the knobs, and suddenly, to your surprise, hear voices streaming out of this strange little box. Now, let's say you begin a careful scientific study of what causes the voices. You notice that each time you pull out the green wire, the voices stop. When you put the wire back on its contact, the voices begin again you come to a clear conclusion. The voices depend entirely upon the integrity of the circuitry. At some point, a young person asks you how some simple loops of electric signals can engender music and conversation. And you admit that you don't know, but you insist that your science is about to crack that problem at any moment. Hello and welcome, I'm Douglas Bowles and this is 42 Minutes, a podcast about meaning, from SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Monday, June 10th, 2019, and today for 42 minutes, we may very well flip our lids. That is, to see things from the other side. Since 2011, this program has been engaged in the act of synchromysticism. Sure, on the surface, it looks like a culture podcast with an emphasis on the written word, but the truth of the matter is that we, SyncBook Radio, and those who listen and participate in this program have been exploring a new worldview from the inside. That is, consciousness attempting to be conscious of consciousness or the mirror mirroring the mirror and becoming aware of itself. Basically trying to flip normal states of consciousness. A flip, writes Jeffrey J. Kripal, is a reversal of perspective, a new real often born of an extreme life-changing experience. The flip is also Kripal's new ambitious book outlining a visionary program for unifying the sciences and humanities to expand our minds open our hearts and negotiate a peaceful resolution to the culture wars. Combining accounts of rationalist spiritual awakenings and consciousness explorations by philosophers, neuroscientists, and mystics within a framework of the history of science and religion, Kripal compellingly signals a path to mending our fractured world. Jeffrey J. Kripal holds the J. Newton Razor Chair in Philosophy and Religious Thought at Rice University and is the Associate Director of the Center for Theory and Research at the Esalen Institute in Big Sur, California. He has previously taught at Harvard Divinity School and Westminster College and is the author of eight books. He's been a guest on this program almost every year since 2012, and it's always a pleasure to be welcoming him back. How are you doing this morning, Jeff? It's been too long. <laughs> I'm well, Doug. I'm well. Thanks for having me on again. You bet. So your book comes at the end of what I read as a mini renaissance of open-mindedness regarding our relationship to knowledge. And here I'm speaking about uh, the books How to Change Your Mind, Time Loops, Real Magic, Dark Star Rising, Strange Frequencies, The Miracle Club, Infinite Possibility. It's, it's really interesting because the last time we talked was kind of at this moment when the left brain was really coming down hard on the humanities, blaming <laughs> blaming the humanities for Trump and just the nastiness of where we found ourselves. Um, it's, it's an interesting turnabout. How, uh, you know, talk about that a little bit and 
and your inspiration for writing this new book. Sure. Well, this book originated actually in a piece I wrote for the Chronicle of Higher Education back in 2014. The, the Chronicle is its sort of the New York Times of the educational world. A lot of administrators and professors in higher education read it. And that little essay was essentially a plea to my colleagues, really, both in the humanities and the sciences, to take these extraordinary human experiences seriously and not keep dismissing them with some pretty simplistic rhetorical or polemical techniques, which I think is what they or what we've been doing for a long time. And the basic argument was that if we reconsider these experiences and put them back on our table, then the relationship between the humanities and the sciences will inevitably shift. It might shift gradually, it might flip suddenly, but consciousness will somehow be the turning point or the key to this, this new uh, recalibration of, of studying human beings and studying the material universe. So it, it, you know, it was sort of born, was born in the midst of a crisis as it were. And then it took me, well, it took me almost, almost four years to write it and then another year to produce and publish it. So it, you know, it's just appearing now, but it's really, um, it's really my reflection on the last four or five years of American cultural and political history and what, why these questions are so important and how they might impact our, our politics, our ethics, our way of looking at ourselves, our religious beliefs, our, the way we practice science, really everything. And so in the book, you definitely talk about uh, how oftentimes we privilege one one realm of this whether it's material or spirit and so you end up with you know whether you're a materialist or an idealist it seems like you arrive at some place in the middle would you say where well yeah yeah i mean the re i mean the reigning consensus for a long time has been essentially scientific materialism which is essentially the position that you know there is only matter and matter at its root or essence is fundamentally devoid of life and intelligence and intention and agency. Um, and that can do a lot. Actually, we can make a lot of cool stuff like refrigerators and iPhones, assuming that, but it's really just an assumption and what it leaves out of the equation, what it leaves out of the worldview of course is us consciousness, awareness, and um, idealism is, of course, the opposite side of the spectrum. It's the position, of course, that there is only mind and that the material universe is at some kind of expression or projection of that mind. I, I, I personally land in the middle, I suppose. I, you know, I go through five different solutions to this mind-matter problem that's been haunting us for centuries, if not millennia. And I don't really, I mean, I, I'm sympathetic to all five of them, actually. But my own inclination or my own orientations kind of land in the metal in something called dual aspect monism, which essentially is the position that the mental world that we inhabit right now, and the material world that we suppose is out there separate from us, 
arise from the same fundamental ground that is neither mental nor material, or if you prefer, both mental and material at the same time. So it's monistic in the sense that everything is essentially one thing, but it's dualistic in the sense that our experience of the world is is definitely two. We we definitely experience the world as two in our in our ordinary states of awareness. So that's that's all pretty nerdy, Doug. But I mean those the, the, those are the conversations that underlie pretty much everything. I mean, if let me just give you a simple example. If we believe that all there is is matter and that, that matter is fundamentally dead, then of course the physical world is ours to use however we see fit. It's just a series of dead resources that we can. Uh, you know, employ in any way we see fit for our own ends, uh, and hence our ecological crisis and uh, looming environmental collapse. If, on the other hand, we saw the world, physical world, as fundamentally alive and sentient, we wouldn't treat it like we do. We wouldn't behave as we do. We wouldn't live like we do, and we would be in a very different situation right now. So th- these. These issues might sound nerdy and abstract, but they actually end up they, they end up determining everything. Actually, your lens is the humanities, and so you're you study you're a comparative religion, you know, historian, and you have tools to utilize in in breaking this down and understanding um, what you arrive at is like the building blocks of religion. These these uh. Um, revelations that various people have that are the building blocks of religion. But the interesting thing in the flip is that you're seeing like our high priests, which are, you know, people in the STEM fields having their own, you know, on the road Damascus moment and then trying to come to terms with it over the course of their, their career. And then they end up you know, almost making themselves heretics in in our worldview by saying, "Hey, this really strange thing happened to me. I have no explanation for this, and but I just can't, I can't go on without explaining, you know, what I went through." Right. So the flip. Well, first of all, the flip is a little book, and it's intentionally little, and it also intentionally looks almost exclusively at scientists and medical professionals and professional intellectuals. And it does that, you know, not because, not because I'm a snob. I mean, I've written whole books about comic books for God's sakes, but because these are the intellectual elites that control our society from the top down. So when they have one of these extraordinary experiences, whether it's a near-death experience, a psychedelic opening, a mystical experience, whatever it is, when they have one of these experiences and they flip from a materialist worldview to a more minded or consciousness uh, central one, they have a pretty big megaphone in the culture. Uh, people listen to them. It, it actually matters what they say. And so I really wanted to feature these these scientists and these engineers and these philosophers because one of the just nonsensical things that floats out there is that these sorts of experiences only happen to people who don't know their science or who don't know their 
medicine or whatever. And that's, it's just false. It's just absolutely false. Um, so I, I really wanted to focus on them. I've again, written other books on entirely different communities that have nothing to do with scientists or medical professionals, but this one, I wanted to focus on them to show that no human being is immune uh, from these kinds of experiences. We, human beings by their very nature are embodied forms of consciousness. And sometimes those forms of consciousness, you know, flip and realize themselves as cosmic. And it just doesn't matter what your profession is or your education that that can happen to any of us at any time. Um, so yeah, that's, that's why the focus is on the science, on the scientists, Doug, and not, not on other, other sorts of people. In the intro, I started with this idea of, you know, a, a Bushman coming across your radio and trying to understand. I, I think it's a metaphor. So that's the interesting thing of the book. Often it's the technology of the time that we're using to tell the story of consciousness. Um, right. Could you unpack that? So I think that uh, is part of filter theory in explaining consciousness. Right. So that story was told by a neuroscientist named David Eagleman in a book called Incognito. And the point that David is trying to make in that book is that actually all of our neuroscience leaves open the question whether consciousness is produced by the material brain or the brain acts more like a radio um, or a receiver of consciousness and then translates it into a person and an ego and, a, and everything else. It's act, David actually did not originate the idea that that radio thesis or what we more technically call the, the filter thesis has been around for, you know, 120 years now, 130 years. And uh, it originated as such in the late 19th century among Victorian psychical researchers and the American philosopher and psychologist William James who talked about the transmission thesis or the filter thesis. And essentially what they meant by that was what I just said, that the brain does not produce consciousness. It receives it and then translates it, of course, into, into you and me. Uh, it's kind of like a Wi-Fi signal that a iPhone picks up and translates it into a very unique um, you know, desktop or iPhone screen. But, you know, you can throw your iPhone against the wall or you can throw your laptop into the ocean and it, it's not going to hurt <laughs> the Wi-Fi signal. Uh, so, I mean, it, it just has all kinds of consequences. And, and so that's, that's kind of the, the big question, you know, is, is the brain uh, a radio or, or, or is, is it producing that which is appearing as a human being? Um, and everything really hinges on that question. And we don't know the answer to that. And neuroscientists like Eagleman don't know the answer either. And the really honest ones, again, like Eagleman, will say it could be either, you know, or it could be some combination of both. Uh, again, these are all just metaphors. And this was your other question. Models of consciousness tend to follow the history of technology so, you know, we, we were once a, a ghost in a machine and, you know, then we were a radio and then we were a television set and now we're a computer. And 
I guarantee you we're none of those things. Uh, and that, you know, there'll be some other metaphor in place in 30 years. Uh, so none of the metaphors work. We're, we're not like the pieces of technology we keep comparing ourselves to, but it's all we've got, you know, and as our technology gets weirder and weirder, our metaphors, I think, get closer and closer to what's actually the case. You also mention that an older technology that lacked the, sec uh, the scientific understanding of it was this notion of the seed and then how we utilize that for our, our uh, well, it, it's basically woven into the scriptural understanding of uh, the worldview and that, you know, ends up creating this like naive idea of how things operate. And thus, you know, we're, I, I think about this a lot, how essentially we're still a Judeo-Christian society with this story at our root and often you know that story is kind of dictating our relationships to one another well doug what i'm trying to do there is warn us about taking our metaphors too literally and the seed and soil metaphor for human sexuality is not only a judeo-christian metaphor it's it's in Asia, it's in the indigenous cultures, it's in any culture that has developed agriculture. It, it's an agricultural metaphor, it's an agricultural mindset. And what it essentially did was it understood human reproduction along agricultural lines. And it essentially said that the male or the, contributes the seed, and the female is the soil and the sexual act is about planting the seed in the soil now and this is where we get all of these biblical stories about infertility and um and of course it's always the woman who's infertile because it's always the land that's infertile it's never the man who's infertile it's never the seed which of course is biologically false but but that was their assumption when you operate with that agricultural metaphor, the essence of the child, of course, resides entirely in the seed. Because if you plant a seed of corn, and then you plant an oak tree seed, you're going to get a corn stalk and an oak tree. It doesn't matter. The soil doesn't determine the nature of the plant. The seed does. And so all of these ancient cultures assumed that the essence of the person was in the father. And this then generated all of these patriarchal systems in which men essentially owned women and children as sexual property because they're him. I mean, he's, he's the one contributing the essence to, to the lineage. Um, now, of course, all of that's wrong. We, we know that now with genetics and um, chromosomes and, and modern embryology. We know it's all false, but we still unfortunately keep working in this old agricultural framework, and we have not really internalized the new genetic one. And what I say in the flip is if we could truly internalize the new genetic worldview, it would completely revolutionize our relationships and the way we think about men and women and, and frankly, sexuality. 
So that's just one example. And you can just run that through all of our metaphors for, you know, pretty much everything and see how they're basically all, you know, they're all dysfunctional. They're all based on previous cultural practices and value systems that are no longer in place. And so we're, we're kind of caught in these crazy anachronisms that are just driving us nuts. Well, speaking of a, a crazy anachronism, so one of the things that the program does, so I've been doing it a while, but one of the things that we landed on that really uh, has a lot of meaning for us is a book club. And most recently... We did Don Quixote, which is, uh, you know, many say it's the first novel and it really kind of is an introduction to modernism where there's kind of an interior and an exterior happening. But the interesting thing with that is that so here's a guy who spends so much time in books that he decides to uh, inhabit a different reality than the rest of reality. He, you know, he goes back in time to chivalry and uh, becomes a knight errant. But it's it's really interesting from the, the idea of truth because it communicates on a level that philosophy or history can't because it speaks, you know, to... Books are really interesting, like the humanities, because it, it connects both the left and the right brain simultaneously. Um... There's not a question there. That's <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I, appreciate, I appreciate that. I, I, I don't have anything to say to it, but I, I'm sure you're right. Well, so I'm just wondering about your own relationship to fiction, you know, in, in your own work. So, like, uh, a, a book that has really been speaking loudly for a long time to me is this uh, book called uh, The Southern Reach Trilogy, Area X. Are you familiar with it at all? No, I'm not actually, Doug. Oh, boy, I think you need to. Because there's a metaphor going on there that somehow is connecting our two worldviews, where there's Area X, where it's this, this uh, alternate area that people think is outside of us. And then all of a sudden, as you move through the book, you realize that it's not really outside of us, that we're, we're in it, and it's in us. But it doesn't have a, a perfect one-to-one -one relationship, and it's just so open-ended that you can just kind of speculate uh, forever. Yeah, about what I'll have to look at it. Yeah. Okay, but so it's interesting because what this sets up is this idea. It's 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 funny because I try to inhabit like an and, like a not an either-or perspective, but I think the function of our brain just automatically puts forth this kind of dualistic nature of humanity you know so yeah no it, it it does i think that's true <laughs> <laughs> i uh i was listening to an alan watts um lecture the other day a, a reader sent me an alan watts lecture and he had this lovely metaphor that the ego is essentially like a radar system on a uh, you know, on a warship or a plane. And the the purpose of radar, of course, is to look out for en the enemy and to avoid dangers or obstacles. And if that's what the ego is, and you identify yourself entirely with that ego, then of course, you're always on the lookout for danger and enemies. 
right? Yeah. But your your world is just a collection of enemies and dangers. That's what it is. Um, so that's the problem is that, you know, the ego or our, our social selves, the way ourselves have been constructed by language and child rearing and, and, and our societies are, they're really necessary and they're incredibly useful and helpful to adapt and survive and reproduce and all the things we need to do. But uh, they come with this downside that they turn everything into an enemy or a danger. And, and that's, that's kind of this, this dualism that you're, you're thinking about, you know, in this dual aspect modism that I was talking about earlier, you know, reality is one, but actually what splits it into two is us. Um, human experience splits it into a mental and a material dimension before human experience. There's no split. It's all one. There's, there's, and there are no problems either, by the way, all the, all the problems we experience are a result of actually us splitting reality into these two dimensions and then going to battle or going to war with others who who are threatening our own turf or our own little slice of the the world um so i mean but so again those are those are deep deep philosophical or metaphysical ways of speaking but you can see how they generate the problems that we're in hmm. well so towards the end of the book you definitely land on a medical professional who shared her knowledge of uh biology and and brain uh chemistry in through her own experience of having a stroke and being able to verbalize how her own consciousness came apart could you give us a basic lesson in what she was talking about but then also in just the left and right hemisphere of the brain like this plato aristotle split well so this is you're talking about Jill Bolte Taylor, who is a neuroanatomist and probably and gave one of the most popular TED talks of all time. I don't know how many millions of views it's up to now, but Taylor's story was that back in the I believe the early 90s she was a neuroanatomist working on a project for Harvard actually, and one morning she uh, ha she began to have a massive um, stroke on the left in her left hemisphere of her brain. And because she was a neuroanatomist, she realized what was happening and could kind of watch it from the inside. And what she noticed was that, or what she eventually remembered was that as her left hemisphere was shutting down because of all the blood that was clotting in it, all of her cognitive and ego structures disappeared and she found herself in this esoteric space of, of bliss and, and essentially infinity. She describes herself as a, like a whale just gliding through this ocean of bliss and, and consciousness. And then as her left brain would come back online, she'd get shocked or thrown back into this state of ego and language and reason and in other words, the, the one you and I are in right now. And she kind of went back and forth between those two radically different forms of consciousness. Um, 
And she eventually got help. They operated. They got the they got the blood stopped. Um, and it took her years, I think like seven or eight years or something to recover. Um, and then she wrote this book called the stroke, my stroke of insight and her stroke of insight boils down to the notion that there are actually two radically different parallel forms of consciousness in us at all times, this, this, uh, monistic or unitive cosmic consciousness that's mediated by our right hemisphere and this egoic, rational, linguistic, mathematical form of consciousness that's mediated by our left hemisphere. And it's, she's pretty, she's very sophisticated, Doug. If you read the book, it's not really clear whether she adopts the filter thesis or not, although it certainly seems so. Um, sometimes she suggests that the brain produces these two forms of consciousness. Sometimes she suggests that they simply mediate them. So, you know, and most neuroscientists, by the way, would insist that most most cognitive and linguistic functions are actually global, as they say. They're, they're mediated by both hemispheres, although they tend to be primarily located in one or the other. But I just find Taylor's story such a powerful parable for our own age. And someone like Ian McGilchrist, um, who wrote this book called The Master and His Emissary, kind of picks up on this idea or takes it in his own direction and basically argues that what Western culture is is a centuries-long domination of the left hemisphere over the right hemisphere to the point now where we are demeaning and dismissing all of these functions of mind that are mediated by the right hemisphere, You know, things like art and unity and humanity and all of these things that join and link us and we're now living in this worldview that privileges competition and violence and egos and identities of all kinds that all reside on the left side or the left hemisphere for for McGilchrist and for um, Taylor so it's essentially a neuroanatomical model or theory about culture and society that, uh, you know, I wouldn't want to literalize, but I think there's definitely something to it. You've, you must have heard that before. I mean, that's not a new idea. That, that idea has been around for 40 years. It's, it's, it's just gotten a lot more sophisticated. Actually, it's been around 50 or 60 years, but it's just gotten a lot more sophisticated with people like Joe Bolte-Taylor and Ian McGilchrist. What's fascinating is to hear it, like I said, so these these uh, respected elite folks from our culture are having their revelatory moments, and then these are like the uh, the building blocks of religion, say. You know, that could become, or, you know, in a previous culture, it, it perhaps, you know, you know, that oh, could... Oh, yeah, sure. But then what you say that's interesting is that like a mystic from a previous culture, when they talk about these moments, they're talking in terms of like light and energy. And so you, you suggest that perhaps this is the same as what science is studying, but it's, it's, it's from the inside and not the, the surface of it. Well, yeah, that's, that's actually a different argument in the book. But I, you know, I can't help noticing that in the history of religions, all of these 
metaphors of illumination and enlightenment and light and halos and glowing this or that. I mean, it's, it's, it's everywhere. And so when I listen to my physicist friends talk about energy or light, they're, they're of course talking about the behavior and structure and speed of, of energy or light, but they're not, they're not talking about what it is. And, um, I think these these experiences, these mystical experiences of illumination, are somehow forms of consciousness that are are essentially on the inside of light or energy, and the physics and the mathematics are looking at it from the outside. And this is this is where or how I would recalibrate the relationship again between the humanities and the sciences is that the sciences are forms of knowledge from the outside and and these these humanistic disciplines and certainly these these forms of mystical experience are views from the inside and it's not to privilege one over the other it's just to say they're they're certainly parallel or they they correspond because they're it's all the same reality um so yeah that's the basic move of the book and the flip essentially what i mean by the flip is is a worldview that begins from the outside you know a scientific perspective looking at everything from the outside and assuming that it's all dead and then somehow being shocked or zapped into the inside of things and realizing that oh oh my goodness it's it's actually all alive it's all conscious and it only looks dead from the outside and then putting those two perspectives together and not demeaning either one of them is what I call the future of knowledge, where, which, of course, we're not at yet and may not be for some time. Yeah, and I think when we get into like quantum science, which is difficult for non, you know, lay people to even consider, or if they think they understand that the you know the quip is that they don't really understand it. Um, <laughs> somehow that unites those like it's, uh, those guys are just as mystical as a lot of the mystics in in doing what they're doing. Well, yeah, yes and no. I mean, so this book came out of weeks and weeks of conversation and just hanging out with quantum physicists, actually. And a couple things to say about quantum physics is that first of all, I don't. I I don't claim to know it. I I don't. I'm not a mathematician. I'm not a physicist. I'm I'm really approaching it through the physicists themselves because all of quantum physics at the end of the day is a product of human beings trying to make sense of physical reality. So there is this profound human dimension to it. And the early pioneers of quantum mechanics, uh, people like Schrödinger and Pauli and Bohr, all saw very, very quickly that there were profound parallels between the quantum mechanics and the mystical traditions. And they said as much. They wrote about this. This is not an idea that comes or that originates in the 1970s or 80s. It originates actually way, way back with the founding fathers of quantum mechanics. But they were talking about parallels. They were not talking about identities. It, it's not true that quantum mechanics is the same thing as a mystical experience any more that it's true that a mystical experience will make you a great 
uh, physicist. That, that's all nonsense. What, what does seem to be true is that this view from the inside, the, the, the mysticism corresponds to or resonates with the view from the outside, i.e. the physics. And that, I think, is a very fruitful approach because, again, it's, it's recalibrating this inside view and this outside view. It's not trying to say that they're the same thing. Um, you know, as with a bunch of these physicists about a year and a half ago, and we were talking about the nature of matter, and I just naively assumed that physicists knew what matter is, and they disabused me of that notion very quickly. They said, no, actually, the physics tells us nothing about what matter is. We don't know what matter is. What physics tells us is how matter is structured and how it will behave, and we can tell you about that in in astonishing with astonishing mathematical precision but physics itself tells you absolutely nothing about what light or energy or matter is and so there again that's the that's the inside question right um they're they're fantastic at the outside questions but they're they're really impotent when it comes to the inside questions and i think the reverse is true with comparative mystical literature, it's really good at, at telling us what it's like to be on the inside of matter or energy, but it's really, really bad at, you know, doing science. Um, something I, does that, that make sense? It, yeah, it makes sense. And, and, you know, something that you explained in the book that I, I found really interesting was how you used the idea of trauma. So we don't think of science necessarily as as violent but it really is violent to break things these things down to understand the structures of the matter even if we don't know what the matter is like that that large hadron collider is super violent and and you also relate how oftentimes the kind of experiences that we we consider non-normal states of consciousness come out of you know extreme violence or death or something that really rends uh, a psyche in, in half somehow. Right. And, and they don't always, you don't, not every mystical or paranormal experience is a product of trauma or violence, but it's extraordinary to me how many are. And so I use, I use this, this analogy that Aldous Huxley wrote about, he, you know, he said, look, you can look at water, you can feel it, you can drink it, you can, Examine it for centuries if you want, and you'll never guess that actually it's two invisible gases glued together by uh, invisible forces. To to establish that extraordinary claim, you have to expose water to extreme forms of violence, and you essentially have to traumatize it and split it into these two gases, and then you have to have sophisticated technologies to measure those gases. And he says, you know, he, I think the same thing is true of the human being. You can talk to a human being for centuries or, or 42 minutes in this case, and you'll never guess that actually the human being is composed of these two basic dimensions, this, this kind of social ego that you're talking to, but also this cosmic form of consciousness that is completely invisible at the moment, but that shows itself when you split apart the human being and 
extreme illness or danger or death. Um, so that's the argument. And of course, that's why these states are, are not as common as we'd like them to be. And that's why you actually cannot reproduce them in a laboratory and measure them and manipulate them because, well, that would be really bad, wouldn't it? <laughs> I mean, that would <laughs> be really, really unethical. And you wouldn't get what you were looking for anyway, probably, because they don't happen all the time. And now that you say that, it's interesting because that brings me back to the X-Men. And I think Magneto's character comes out of a concentration camp. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Magneto realizes his abilities in the severest of traumas imaginable. You know, being separated from his family and watching all of his loved ones, you know, murdered. Um I mean, really, almost any, you could look at almost any of the superhero genres. I mean, none of them lead happy, healthy, normal family lives. Come on. They're all, they're all born in trauma. (laughs) Well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Yeah. No, Doug, I'm always happy to be on. So where are you headed now? This, I I love this book. Where, what direction are you headed in these days? Well, you know, I'm working on this Superstory trilogy, the, the, these three books that look at the history of the paranormal and the sciences in the last 200 years or so um, towards a different kind of story or worldview and, that I think is trying to emerge through the floorboards, as it were, through popular culture primarily, um, but that hasn't yet appeared. So I, I'm working on the big, the big one, the super story. <laughs> Excellent. You've been listening to Jeff Kripal on 42 Minutes, production of SyncBook Radio and SyncBook.com. Check out his work at his website, kripal.rice.edu. Hey, hey, D- yeah. hey Doug. You know, it's, you know, I have a new website. Yeah. The, the website you mentioned there is old, and does, it doesn't really tell you much. The, the new website is jeffreyjkripal.com. You bet. I will share that out for sure. For more information about the Sync Book, our guests, to check out past shows, to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, oh, or subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and check out our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast, check out others. It's currently all the Sync Book Radio archives are free. We also feature a great search engine to help you find what you need. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com. Thanks so much. And the eye through which I see God is the same eye through which God sees me.